Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and change makers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. A child of the Great Migration, Ava Willis Barksdale has gone from a stint as a student in the steel mills to the vice presidency of Lincoln University, the nation's first degree-granting historically black college and university. Along the way, she has made her mark in both healthcare and higher ed fundraising, demonstrating a unique capacity for combining teaching and leadership with mentoring the people in her teams. All of this leading to the development of cultures of transformational philanthropy. Ava shared some of her journey with us in this conversation. So can you tell me about where you're from? Sure. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Um, I was born there. My parents um, migrated there uh, from North Carolina. So, uh, and they have seven children or had seven children and I am number seven. So the first two were born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and then they arrived in Buffalo in I think 1943 or 44 and the remaining five of us were born in Buffalo. And you use that word uh, uh, thoughtfully, migration. So was that a part of the great migration? Is that the way that your family thought about it? Yes. Um, You know, my father and both of his brothers were in the armed forces and, um, and all three of them, I believe, had some part of the little tail end of World War II. Um, and after returning, they chose to, you know, branch out. Uh, people were, con- were saying that there was more opportunity in the North. And even though um, my father and one of his brothers and one of their first cousins all moved to Buffalo, which was, of course, a steel city, none of them ever worked in the steel industry I'm the only one that did that. Well, oh, okay. <laughs> well, we have to go there, but since they didn't go for steel, what did they? How did they choose Buffalo, and what did they do? I I don't really know why they chose Buffalo. I think my well, I do know a little bit. My father's first cousin, uh, James, was a butcher. And he went first. He went to Buffalo. He joined the union, which was unusual for an African-American man at that time. And I believe that he sent sort of the breadcrumbs back and said, this might not be a bad town. And so then my dad went and then my brother, my dad's brother uh, came last. He was actually uh, still in the army uh, before they moved. He was younger. And then when he came to Buffalo, he chose to become um, a mortician. And so he took the courses and the test and stuff. And so, yeah, lots of great stories with him. Because he was a mortician, but he was a mortician who specialized in um, reconstructive facial work so that the deceased would look as close to they did before death which he, he really was an artist in that way. And, so anyway, so... And working, yeah. working there, uh, especially around the steel industry, there were probably a few people who needed a little bit of, 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 uh, of work before they were able to be yeah. seen by their families after they passed. Yeah. 
And because in the African-American tradition, you know, the viewing is a big deal. And, you know, so he was he actually outlived uh, both of the brothers. Um, my uncle died maybe seven years ago now, and he was well into his 90s. Yeah. So. But you yeah. said you did not work in steel uh, or you, you excuse me, you did work in steel. What how, how did that come about? So <laughs> my. Uh, between my junior and senior year of college, I came home because I was going to school in Alabama. Of course, I came home for the summer and um, the Urban League was hiring college students to work at Bethlehem Steel in Lackawanna right outside of Buffalo. Mm. And I believe I finally decided afterward that they got a certain amount of money from the government for hiring these college students because I'm not sure they really intended for us to stay, but... Um, so I, I came home, I told my dad, Hey, I applied for this job. I have a job at Bethlehem steel. And he said, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> my father was very protective of his five girls and I was the youngest one. And I was always doing something like, I think I just want to do this. And he's like, oh, okay. So it was $10 an hour in the seventies. That was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They paid every week. Um, all they said was you'll be doing labor work. I said, Oh, okay. I thought I was tough, you know? So, um, I went, um, I made it through about seven of those weeks. Um, they kept moving us. I I worked for the bricklayers first. I worked in the strip mill. Then when they put me in the blast oven, I still was toughing it out. And then they said, well, we're going to put you on a swing shift. You may work nights. You may work mornings. You may, but I was like, so it was like, I think week seven, I said to my dad, because he would take me in the morning and then my older brother would pick me up in the evening to, to bring me home. And I was, I would be so tired and dirty. I was just like, no talking. But when I told him that I thought I was, I, I think I'm, I'm done. My father broke down in tears. He was like, I always thought that I would take you one morning and you would not be able to come back out. Oh. So but he was willing to honor the fact that I was, you know, independent enough to say I wanted to do this. Um, and it was a it was a totally different world. But I, I tell kids all the time, including my own, that every young person should have what I call my steel mill experience. And the reason that I say that is because I worked with some gentlemen, you know, because it was mostly men who had been there for 25, 30, 35 years. Uh, many of them would ask me, so you're in college, right? Yeah. What are you in college to do? And I would explain because at the time I was, you know, working on getting my medical technology degree and they were like, wow, you, and and I will not forget a couple of really so almost elderly gentlemen that said to me, you know, don't get stuck here. Mm. We know that this is, you know, good money, decent money. He said, People leave here on Friday, they're broke before Monday. They start working here, they get used to this money, they never leave. He said, you've seen the very few women around here that have worked for 20, 25 years, you can't even recognize them. He said, you've got a bright mind. You've got things that you need to do in this world. So make sure that you get what you get this summer and go back to school and finish. And I I treasured that, you know, so were there many other students there or were you really sticking out? 
<laughs> there were some when we when we did our orientation, and the orientation was hilarious. Questions well, hilarious because they they played all of these workplace safety movies for you mm-hmm. to show the person whose foot got cut off and the, oh. you know, got burnt or whatever. And it's like, oh my god! <laughs> there were probably fifteen or twenty of us um, in that orientation. Mm-hmm. By the time I left, I'm pretty sure there were only like five or six of us left. Um, That's yeah. a special sorority. You should <laughs> you should all get together once in a while. But you were you were in um, going to school in Alabama. So how did you choose? Your whole family had migrated north. How did you choose to go to Alabama for school? So I attended Oakwood College, which is now Oakwood University, and um, it is a school that is um, was created and developed and is still run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I happen to be Seventh-day Adventist. It is the only historically black college that is part of the Adventist um, higher ed network. And all seven of us went. So by the time I was born, (laughs) it was like really, you know, there was actually no other choice. Although, um, there is another um, college or university in Michigan that is part of that network. I actually happened to go to high school for my last two years there because one of my brothers-in-law was, was working there. Um, I often tell people that I was incorrigible, so my parents just finally sent me away. But, um, <laughs> but and I had a, a scholarship to stay at Andrews and at that point in my life, I think I finally realized that I, I needed or wanted to be in that environment where I didn't stick out, where I was being um, taught on hallowed grounds. I mean, Oakwood is a, was a plantation, uh, and it was a plantation where Dred Scott actually labored for oh. some period of his life. And so there was so much there um, that I, you know, even as I was graduating, I was like, well, this has been great. Got to run. So, um, so yeah, that was, that's part as much a part of home to me as anything. And the fact that I lived there for 13 years after graduation, both of my daughters were born there. One of my daughters is also, um, a graduate. So we are, you know, alumni together and then I taught there, you know, so, uh, and and that daughter still lives in Huntsville, so I go there periodically. So that's you know, yeah. so Huntsville is, is probably my second home. Did it, it, when we're when we are young, we don't necessarily have a fully formed uh, either vision of what's going to happen or really a complete view of history. We 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 right. uh, attach ourselves to things that are meaningful to us at the time. When you mentioned that, that's the place where Dred Scott was. That sticks out for me as an adult. Was it? Were you already aware of the history and significance of that place when you chose to go, or did that is that an awareness that you developed with time? I was aware of the the history with regard to it having been a former plantation. Hmm. I didn't. I think it was after I finally went that I was like, oh, so he's a big guy. My family, my my father, really, who was not an educated man was big on us knowing history, um, particularly African-American history, and probably because he was consciously part of that migration. And because every summer we still went down south 
to see our grandparents and cousins and things in North Carolina. I used to ask my mom when I was a little girl because, you know, I knew vaguely about, you know, discrimination and stuff. And I shouldn't say vaguely. I knew it, even though we lived in the North. But I asked her about those stories you would hear about the South, um, about riding in the back of a, you know, a bus or whatever. And, and she told me stories about um, Winston-Salem, which was not a typical Southern town, and that there had always been um, a fair amount of Black businesses and jitneys and things like that. And so some of those things she had not experienced in that way, but it was also part of why they felt like if they came North, maybe their kids wouldn't experience any of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't entirely true, but you know. Well, the experience I'm sure was different. But yeah. uh, but as a young person, your only base, your only way of knowing what the differences were would be, I guess, from family, and then mm-hmm. what you personally experienced at that point in time. But it sounds like uh, the Oakwood experience was that a positive experience? It sounds like it must have been because so many siblings yeah. and, and a daughter went there. So what um, was that transformational for you, more than educationally, to go to a place like that? Well, I think. I think, you know, again, when you go back to the the concept of when you're young, you know, you kind of you do what you do and you think later it becomes like, wow, that was really important. Um, I think at that time I felt like it was. It was um, comforting for me and it was um, a place where I could grow to be as big or as little or whatever without being. Uh, reviewed racially per se, mm-hmm. but I was always such a, as you can tell from the Bethlehem Steel story, I was always such a go-getter, I guess, <laughs> that for me, it was, I'm loving where I am, but I also have, you know, I've got something to do here. I was really conscious of the fact that my parents mm-hmm. Um, me being their last and them having sent all of us, I I can't really quite calculate how that worked out because neither of them graduated from college. Um, My father only had a high school education. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and they had all these kids that they managed to get to and some through college. And so I was fairly serious about this is, I'm, I don't know where this money is coming from. So I've got to buckle down and do this. Now I had as much fun as I could. And I was um, a member of the Aeolians, which is the uh, touring choir. And is today even um, if Aeolians have been in existence for 75 years and the recent group of Aeolians traveled internationally and became the choir of the world and, and all of that. Um, so, um, so there are things that my Oakwood experience probably shaped in me that will be there forever. And mostly just because my parents are like, well, it's time, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to, to have this. They knew that there were things that I could get there that they could only talk about, but never really do for me. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I needed to take advantage of of everything that was there because it wasn't like this was not money that could be thrown away. Uh, 
that's pretty profound understanding of your of your family too. Not everybody at that age has that, but you clearly did. I know you had six come before you, so maybe that contributed in a way. But yeah. that doesn't necessarily explain how that grew into what has become a career, largely not entirely, but largely in education uh, and educational leadership. But I I know we're going to go there. But I have to ask you first. You, you went there to study medical technology initially. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, so how did you make that choice? And then how, where did that lead you to? Because then you went for a master's in education. Where, how was that lead? So that's pretty funny because I went for medical technology. And, and part of the reason why I said I was very serious is because it was a three-in-one program. So you did three years at college and one year that was clinical. Okay. And my one clinical year was in Chicago. So I had to do almost four years of science in three years and then do that kind of big bonus year. Um, I chose that because as a kid, I always could do science and math. That was not, you know, an issue for me and I enjoyed them. And my older siblings used to say, oh, you should be a doctor. And I was like, Mm, nah, I'm not. And I said, the problem with that concept is I'm not sure that I like sick people like that. So, <laughs> so, so when I was in high school, I did this sort of shadowing thing with someone who was a med tech and they worked in a very small lab. So they were the only person. So they ran all these machines and they did everything themselves. And I thought, now that. See, I could do that because I felt like I would still be helping people, but I, the science of it, I mean, you know, also as a crazy aside, I spent time with my uncle and I would go with him when he would pick up bodies and things. Oh. So, and so pathology, which is really the, the stem for medical technology mm -hmm. is very, it's still interesting to me. And it's been so many years since I've been in an actual lab, but that seemed more interesting to me than the bedside situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, so I did that. I, when I graduated, I, I, I said I stayed in Huntsville. I worked at Huntsville Hospital for almost seven years. And in that time, some of my uh, previous faculty members um, uh, who had taught me at Oakwood reached out and said, you know, we'd really love to have you come back and teach. And I was like, what, what would I possibly teach? I'm, I'm an applied scientist. I'm not a, you know, and they said, yeah, we just, so I taught chemistry. And while I was teaching, I felt like I was at, I was teaching at the higher ed level. I needed to at least have a master's degree. So I was teaching all day. I was married, had two little kids. I would drive at least once a week, a hundred miles to Birmingham to get my master's degree. And um, it was an education, but the specialty is um, health science. So, yeah. That's a, that's a lot. I, so you were courting, then married, then giving birth to two children, driving all over the place. That was a lot. And teaching? Yeah. I, uh, did you did this just all sort of happen organically or was there some kind of plan yeah. or what? Yeah, you just. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I look back on it and now it's so 
it seems so far back, but when I look back on it, I feel like I had sort of a plan in chunks. I had a plan to get that degree and to work in the hospital. They asked me to teach and I realized as I was teaching, and this I think is genetic because my mother was probably the best teacher I ever knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed the idea of teaching. I enjoyed watching students who were petrified about general chemistry <laughs> and their eyes you know, brighten up when they finally realized they could learn this. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being in the lab with students and helping them see the application of what they had read in the book. What I didn't necessarily plan for in in higher ed is that you're never just a teacher kind of, you never stay at that level. And work with students is great, but What's your scholarship and how many things can you publish? And and I wasn't really interested in that. So when I started doing administrative work, I could still have a connection with students. Every now and again, I could teach something. But I was also moving program or programmatic things forward, particularly as I got into diversity work. And ultimately, I ended up in in philanthropy is kind of... It's a circuitous route. Yeah, but at the same time, it does kind of mirror, at least as I'm hearing you, some of what you described when you said you could have gone in the route of bedside care or in the machines to figure out what exactly is going on here with a person's health or a group of patients. And when you go into administration, you're, you know, you're moving all those big, heavy machines, probably like you were dealing with stuff at the steel factory versus, uh, you know, um, just one particular student and you, God love them, but you've got a, it's a different set of issues as a teacher from what it would be to administer a school. Um, so how did you make that next leap? Because then you went, what, um, I, I don't know how many years it was, I guess, between uh, being there um, at University of Alabama and then eventually taking on your roles in development. Um, what was the that bridge between there and, and being at Loyola? So because I, when I left Oakwood, I worked at two medical schools, mm-hmm. two different medical schools, East Tennessee State, and then um, Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Mm-hmm. And I did diversity programming work for medical students. What is it, what, uh, describe what that looked like at that time? So it was helping those colleges, universities know how to attract, retain, and develop students of color mm-hmm. for um, medical school and in, in Tennessee also for biomedical uh, PhD level programs. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean about your program? What does that mean about your offerings? What does that mean about support? Um, so all of those things that surrounded the, the academic work um, but wasn't quite student affairs. It was still um, trying to help diversify. At um, Ohio University in particular, we did a lot of pipeline work. So we had programs for second graders, eighth graders, high schoolers, oh, wow. college students, and then that entering class. Um, and we went from something like two or three percent um, diverse students in the first year to about 18% within 
three years. So I'm, I'm really proud of that work. Um, and so for that chunk of time, that was about mm, 97 to about 2000. So about, you know, 13, 12, 13 years that, that those experiences um, existed. And, and then I, I was living in Ohio, working across the state, going to um, working, driving from Dayton to Athens. It was a crazy time. Um, and Earlham College was actually my first fundraising stop, uh, which is in Indiana, mm-hmm. but it's only 30 miles from Dayton. So it was a lot closer than going to Athens. But I had only promised to stay with um with OU until we got the grant rewritten that I had been working on. So I had really finished my time with them. And um, at Earlham, they said they were looking for someone to do corporate and foundation relations and government grants. Oh, and what so they the grants. Wanted, yeah, I, okay. They wanted for someone who could work with their science faculty and write grants. I said, well, okay, is that all? Cause I'm okay. <laughs> so, um, so that was, that was how I got into advancement work. Sure. Um, uh, Tim Weidman, who was the interim VP at the time, he was there with me for about a year or so. And I, you know, he went on, moved on when they found their permanent VP, but then he called me when he got to Loyola and he said, I'm writing a job for you. I'm wondering if you would be willing to come to Chicago and be my associate vice president, run the division while I raise money. And you had already done your stint in Chicago, so you knew what Chicago was, I guess, from that year in school. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a very different place from Buffalo Mm -hmm. or, you know, any of these other places where you were studying in Alabama, et cetera. Um, But uh, it sounds like it was a good partnership. Um, what was, was, what was your role to be in the office? Because you said as he goes out and raises money, but, um, for people who don't know you, you've done plenty of money raising in your, in your career. So were you kind of running the entirety of the office, the operational aspect or. Right. So yes, I was, so alumni relations, advancement services, all of the, uh, units Mm -hmm. were reporting to me. And um, Loyola was also going into campaign. So I was the campaign director and I was supervising all of the individual uh, giving, plan giving, advancement services, alumni relations um, events. And uh, Tim was our VP um, and he just kind of would check in with me. So, um, (laughs) but he was much more external. And, you know, there were people that I had as a, I had a small portfolio, a few people on the board um, and certain people that he would take me with him on kind of, on some visits and things like that. A lot of um, organizational work. Uh, so so that was, you know, the way those four years in Chicago kind of uh, opened up. And that that, was, uh, that that must have been quite an experience because that's that's a good sized place. That's a, an outsized role. All the operations. I mean, fundraising doesn't happen without all of that. It, it, it sounds like you were again uh, that that kind of operational aspect is this consistent theme here, where you make the machines work, you make sure that the engine runs. Um, it, it, did you enjoy 
development that early on? Was it, was it, what was the most exciting part of it for you? I think I, I've, I've enjoyed it the whole time, yeah. but what I enjoy is the interaction with people who share a passion for whomever you represent. Right. Um, it's, it's, I also love, as it may seem, as it may not be, um, if it's not obvious, I love building teams. I love developing talent. That's the teacher part of me that I think remains and will remain for the rest of my life. And so, um, so while I'm developing the talent and we're thinking how this machine can work, mm-hmm. we're also interacting with people who, especially at, at that point, we, we were doing grateful patient work a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's both heartache and heartwarming work with grateful patients. Sometimes it's just because they, it was a miracle that this you know, physician or facility was able to, to help them. Sometimes it's the descendants of a person that, was, that didn't make it, but they're still great for the care. And so the level of compassion and empathy that you have to have at that time is, you know, it steps away from all the machine work I'm doing in the office. So I had to use both sides of my brain, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it, that's pretty fulfilling too, that way, because you can, you can uh, uh, put that focus on, on the people um, who are making all those machines work. You can't do one without the other. There's, there's a lot of um, kind of silos within our world of philanthropy. And it sounds like you weren't in either. You were bringing those together. Is that a fair? Yes, that is fair. And it is also maybe one of the hallmarks of my work is that I often arrive at a place and kind of check for the silos and see how we can break those down. Um, It's because most places are not nearly as successful as they can be if they maintain the silos, even the big ones, you know, there are some of these shops that have two and 300 people in them. Um, and some people have no idea what someone else is doing in another building or in another floor or whatever, but just a little bit of conversation <laughs> that would bring everyone together, or at least, you know, some sort of communication stream makes the whole team stronger. Yeah. So. Now you were there, you said for four years, is that right? Mm-hmm. And then where did you go on to next? Where was the next big leap? So enter Philadelphia. I was, um, Loyola sold their hospital. You know, for many years, the hospital had been kind of the cash cow for them. And then they decided it was a little bit of a liability as um, insurance and Medicare, Medicaid payments became difficult and whatever. So they sold their hospital. And, you know, whenever there's a big, um, change from the top, then a lot can change. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically replaced senior leadership in the hospital setting. Well, so they said, we love you, but uh, we're going to do a different thing. So I go, fine, that's, I'm good. I was still in Chicago. I, I loved Chicago. I wanted to stay in Chicago. Um, but a consultant that I knew that I worked with said, you know, I've been talking to this woman in Philadelphia at Fox Chase Cancer Center, and you really ought to talk to her. And I was like, what about that sounds like Chicago? I'm just, and he said, no, for real, you should really, you should go. 
Um, so I, I came to Philadelphia. My understanding was she had already chosen who she was going to hire, but because he was pressing her, she chose to, you know, interview me and then she hired me. So I don't know what that was. I don't know what I said. I don't know what the magic was, but so, so I ended up in Philadelphia at, um, Fox Chase Cancer Center, which was also a great little institution. So it was healthcare and it was specifically cancer care, but it's one of the smaller facilities in the Philadelphia area. However, even though it's one of the smaller facilities, they have a lot of specialty cancer care and a lot of research going on there. And it was really a great place, again, to represent that cause to people. It was almost the exact same job as I had had in Chicago, being the associate vice president and kind of running the office and letting um, my boss be the external person, except when it was necessary. And I, you know, and I was I was good with that for about a year. And then she went back to her alma mater at her sinus. And she was like, okay, I just have to, and I was like, okay, I'm good. All right. I can, I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I was only there. I was only at Fox Chase for about two, maybe two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then I got a call out of the blue from a headhunter that didn't even identify the organization. They said, we're wondering if you would consider raising money for a boarding school in the city of Philadelphia, a residential school that is in North Philly that serves a minority population. And I was like, well, this sounds interesting, but what school is this? Mm -hmm. So then they directed me to the um, website for Gerard. I read that history. I thought about my own personal history. I thought about the teacher that's still in me. (laughs) And I said, well, maybe this is for me to give to a community that, you know, because they were created for orphaned white boys, but had transitioned by that time to children who were from single parent homes. And while I didn't grow up in a single parent home, you know, the poverty level, you know, I had to finally face the fact that I guess we were poor. I didn't really know it when I was a kid. Mm. And so I took that. Well, I went there to interview for that job. And the president that interviewed me said, I can find another fundraiser. I need a general vice president and I need you to be here in three weeks or whatever. And so (laughs) I lived on the campus. Um, They have uh, it was a lovely 4,000 square foot home on the campus. Um, I, I did that work for eight and a half years. Um, it, was, it was great. It was the first time in my education career that I was not in higher ed because that school runs from grade one through 12. And so it was, it was really an interesting time. It was valuable to me in my insides um, and because of my background and I was there through actually three presidents um, and and then 
my boss who had left me and gone to her, her alma mater at her sinus, who over those years had always tried to figure out a way to get me there, um, finally said, you know what, I really think I need for you, you know, I've got this job. It's not the job I ultimately want you in, but I'm wondering if you would come join me and do corporate and foundation relations, which mm -hmm. was funny because it was all the way back to my first advancement sure. job. But I felt like it was the t it was time. It was the right time. Um, I had given, you know, some time. They were getting ready to go through another a presidential transition. And I said, you know what? Okay. So presidents is enough. that's how I landed back <laughs> in advancement. Um, and that has been four years ago now. So with Ursinus, um, mm -hmm. did you know much about the school? I mean, you knew her, but did you know the school or what their mission was or anything? Because you've been working just uh, during your time at Girard at a very, you know, at least uh, the foundational mission is very strong there. And, and I believe everybody there goes for free to Gerard. Yep. Um, they're focused on, as you said, a transformation from the original mandate in terms of the mm -hmm. ethnic population, uh, ethnic um, diversity there. It was it was all homogeneous. It was all white originally. That changed dramatically with time, but it still maintained that charter that it was going to make mm -hmm. it a free education for every student who attended from Philly. Um, uh, so that's so clear in terms of mission. So then when Arsinus reaches out to you, it's for the role. Um, but what did you think of, of the mission? Were you, were you excited by returning to higher ed and doing that kind of work? I was, I was excited about returning to higher ed. I felt like um, I had a connection, of course, with Jill, my boss. But what I felt like was um, compelling about Arsinus was their intention to stay true to the tenets of liberal arts education. Because, you know, most schools just for survival are talking about, well, how can we make sure when students finish, they have a job? How can we define their courses so much, so prescribed that they become almost technical in nature? And Orsinus was then and is now holding true to the fact that a liberal arts education prepares students to do anything they want to do, but mostly think. And so, um, so that was interesting to me. And then, you know, the three years that I ended up being there ended up being really tumultuous, tumultuous years in the world. And as an African-American professional, there were things that, I often was either asked or um, offered to do because I'm African-American. And there were challenges, um, certainly in the United States with the George Floyd um, killing with, you know, lots of things, you know, pandemic, people were raw. Um, and often I was just, for, I don't know, for want of a better word, consulted. How would this feel if, that's how I ended up doing the speech about the HBCU experience. How does it feel to be here? How does it feel to be in different places? What is the experience? You know, actually in truth, I've worked a number of places that were predominantly white institutions where people weren't necessarily interested 
in how it feels to be African-American. They didn't ignore it, but it wasn't as much a part of the conversation as it is now. So, yeah, I, I, to be in the middle of that at a school where um, I don't know how many African-Americans were working on the staff or even among the student body at Ursinus, but um, it seemed like there was, from what you're saying, that there was an interest in discussing these issues. But if people kept turning to you like that, how did that, how did that feel? It's two feelings. Gratifying and exhausting. And there were times when I would say, today I'm just going to be AVP. I happen to be Black, right. but I am AVP. In this conversation, we're going to talk about advancement, because that is actually my job. Um, but, I, you know, I was not averse entirely uh, to share my experiences, but I was able to say there are some times when it's too heavy and sometimes when I feel like I owe this to my parents, to my people, that you understand about me. Because if you can understand about me, maybe that'll make it better for the next person that you meet or the next person that you hire or consider hiring because you've heard me say, this is how it feels to come through this lens, so. It, it, this was a really challenging time for everybody. And that means it was challenging for you personally too. So the exhausting part of your description, I'm trying to imagine what that's like. But then you, it, you just, it sounds like throughout your whole career, you pretty much thrown yourself into the mix of things without fear of exhaustion. But, um, but we were dealing with a lot of kind of emotional trauma mm -hmm. um, after, uh, I mean, this has been going on for, for many, many decades, but yes. uh, brought crystallized um, during Black Lives Matter, um, uh, especially with the attention uh, that was uh, finally um, accorded for George Floyd's killing, but many other instances. But you were, as a person, you were experiencing that. And then the school's turning to you and saying, hey, can you talk about this? I can imagine that must have been um, yeah. difficult. So how did you come to this how did the speech arrive, this HBCU speech? Because that's a way of, again, taking part of your brain and being able to say, oh, well, I can I can talk about this. I know what it's about. I've lived it, but I also know it. And then talking about it in an environment that's that's not from that. Uh, how did that come about and what were you trying to, to share? Well, luckily, you were able to read the words. When I delivered it, I was a little emotional. Um, in at the end of that speech, there's a reference to um, one picture. I had one picture on the screen, and it was a picture of my sister, uh, one of my two oldest sisters, um, who it was a graduation picture of her, and she was graduating from Oakwood. She had gone to Oakwood when I was four. Um, oh, um, and um, <laughs> she ended up. She got married, had kids, and didn't finish. And so 50 years to the year, she graduated from Oakland. Oh. And there was a picture of her with the president receiving her degree. And two years after that, we lost her. And so what I was trying to convey was because people asked me so much 
well, what is the difference in the experience? And I, and I wanted them to know the sense of pride that many of us who have gone through and finished or even not finished from HBCUs come out with, even when we may complain about lack of resources, even when we may say, well, yeah, nobody really knows my school's name or whatever, but there is so much there that in the intervening years, she had always said, one day I'm going to go back and finish. And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when she did, that was, that's a pivotal moment. It was in her life, but in ours as well. And so this speech that, you know, people asked me to just talk about the experience. They didn't know where, what direction how it comes from or whatever. So I felt like I wanted to do history because people don't necessarily know that history unless they've availed themselves of it. And then I would personalize it for what it meant in my own history. Um, in my own family. Uh, another funnier side is when I moved to Philadelphia, I was single. Um, I wasn't always single, but I was single when I moved to Philadelphia. Um, I am now married. And the gentleman that I married, we, I, we happened to meet through work. I found out that his mother had attended Oakwood. And I was like, hmm? we went to his cousin's home and saw pictures in his cousin's wedding album where my uncle, my father's brother, was in their wedding. Wow. Because they all went to Oakwood in the 40s. So before I was born, before my husband and I were born, our families were connected. And so for me, the HBCU experience is my life almost, you know, um, then and now. And uh, so, so there's just, there was a lot that it, it was hard to, and a lightning talk is usually like five minutes. So I was like timing this. <laughs> I'm not sure how long I actually talked. <laughs> yeah, so that was how I ended up doing that. You know, I think, I'm not sure that they got what they asked me to do, but it was what I felt would actually give the broadest context of what question I was trying to answer for them. Ava, I, I have to ask you something. Um, I ask this of almost everybody I meet, usually offline, but um, I, I want to ask you here because of what we're talking about. This collective experience we've all had, each through our own lens, because everybody's mm -hmm. experience is different and unique. But um, now it seems like people are, are uh, rushing to go back to whatever normal is. I'm wondering about the other things that we were finally discussing, which which you and your career actually remarkably were working on many years ago. So, so those schools that, for example, focused on diversity, equity and inclusion uh, when it was, you know, two percent, one to 18 percent, that kind of thing for student body. I remember those days in Michigan when it was only eight percent, the student body, at the University of Michigan uh, it was African-American. And those are big leaps. Those institutions made those choices, but many places never talked about this, never thought about it until the last two years. So now as we get out of COVID and people go back to offices and they can go out to eat and they go, start to resume some kind of life that they think is the life that they had, as if nothing has changed, I wonder about these things we've been talking about right now. Are people... Do you get a sense that people are still going to remain aware of these things and still remain focused on them? 
So, you know, it's funny that you should ask that because even if you think about my career, Mm -hmm. I prayerfully accepted the opportunity to come to Lincoln because as people's minds, I guess, were opened or finally said they would talk, talk about these things out loud, they also did a thing that were like, hey, you know, we got like 103 historically black colleges. I knew someone that graduated from one of those and I did. And so I have taken this opportunity to come back inside and to make sure that this bubble, I think, that we're in right now for HBCUs in particular can have as long a tail as possible. There are people who have like, will call me since I've been here and say, we've been driving past that school for years. I'm wondering, would you, we'd like to have a start a scholarship in the name of so-and-so. It's like, yeah, so, but they didn't know somehow. They didn't pay attention. And so I think that there will be a, some length of this awakened moment. But I think there are people like me and, and, and schools like this that are going to have to keep people aware of the struggle not being over, uh, the challenges not being gone, and that what we do in places like Lincoln, like Oakwood, like Howard, like Morehouse, like Spelman, is to prepare African-American and not African-American only, whoever comes, but especially African-American students to become professionals that will lead the world. So, you know, I, I, I know that there are some people who would like to say, have we, have we given all the conversation that we need to for this now? Are we all, are we past that? Are we post-racial? Um, and we're not. Um, but I think that it's an incumbent upon people like me um, and people who have joined people like me, like you, Jay, that are willing to continue to talk about it, to continue to make us the best selves that we can be um, in this country and beyond. And so, you know, in the, whatever the waning years of my career, (laughs) I hope that that's the legacy that I lead. yeah, I guess I, when I think about it and I hear it from you, I've just sort of stepped out there and done some crazy things and tried to make them make sense. Um, but hopefully in the end, this is what, you know, people will remember is that it wasn't just um, a flight of fancy or a lark. It was actually to mean something to somebody um, and to have a trail that someone could follow. So. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ava, for all of this. Really do appreciate it. You're welcome. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.